Turn to Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four, we've got a lot of complex things to talk about today, and I, I think it'll pique your interest and be so profoundly pertinent to every one of our lives. Uh, this is Matthew chapter four. We're gonna go through the first 11 verses as we're following Jesus, and I wanna remind you just spiritually where we're at as a church, and I really believe where we're at individually and where we're at as a church on a spiritual level we are following along with the narrative of Matthew. We are being prepared. Um, in chapter three, John the Baptist said, prepare the way of the Lord. Make your paths straight for the, for the way of Messiah, for the one that's coming. I hope you have felt, as I have, oh man, the spirit preparing your heart, preparing our hearts as a community to meet Jesus and to hear him invite us personally. That's coming next week. It's a preparation for us to say, are we, what are we gonna say to this invitation? And what is going on in our hearts? And today, I think we'll definitely reveal a lot of how our heart works, the complexity of mankind, um, uh, the spiritual forces that are having influence on our life and on our world, on us individually, but other, the things around us, um, and it, some really good ways that we can prepare, okay? Okay, so let me read this to you, and then we're gonna ask God to lead us through this, ask his spirit to guide us through this, and then we'll jump in, in faith. This is verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after feasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was, I'll add, super hungry. <laughs> he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their, hand, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, okay, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Spirit, same spirit that led our master Jesus, would you lead us now? not only our hearts and our minds, but all of our being, would you lead us and guide us, please, into your presence, into your fullness? Would you give us courage to look at this very interesting, complex, profound passage? Would you give us eyes to see the mysteries and the beauty of it and how it relates to us, please? And I just wanna say, I, I, I give myself again to you now. I just 
come as I am. Would you please use me for your glory? As unworthy as I am, I'm worthy in Christ. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, the first line, if, you, if, you, if, you can, if you've heard this story before and your eyes don't gloss over it, if you can kind of go back to ground zero and pretend like you're reading it for the very first time, this first line ought to be, is reasonable to be extremely troubling. Let me read it to you. It's a very troubling line. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What we, hear, what we have here, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God. God is purposely leading his son into the wilderness so that he will be tempted by the devil. It's very, it's very troubling. It's, it's a very troubling passage. Seemingly, you've got, you've got God the Father working together, maybe unbeknownst to the devil, but somehow working in concert with the devil to put his son into temptation. A little too close for comfort, I'd say. A little too close. Why is God and the devil working together to tempt Jesus? That's, that should be the question that shocks you. Why is this happening? Notice that this is God's idea. He's the one that initiates this. It wasn't the devil's idea. De the devil didn't say, I'm coming after Jesus. God introduced them kind of, in a sense. Makes you feel a little unsafe about the God that, of the Bible. This is also troubling, and we'll get into, this is, we'll do a bunch of cleanup work leading into this, but this is also troubling just because of our idea of the devil. Chances are when I say the devil, all sorts, when you hear that word, your brain fills that vacuum in with all sorts of very interesting things. What are some things that you think of when you think the devil? What comes to your mind? What is that? Pure evil, yes. What else? What's that? Horns, okay, yes, horns, yeah, for sure. Yeah, anyone else? Deception, okay, deceiving, yes. Anyone else? What about, I mean, I think of these cartoons, you know, that the, the, this kind of, um, this kind of prankster that we kind of, we, we kind of admire, a little bit of a rebel that likes to pull, and he's in this devil cartoon and he's kind of prodding, he's kind of the, um, you know, the one that got away, the child that's kind of mischievous, we love him, but he's kind of like, he's kind of a jerk, you know, that type of a thing. That's kind of how our culture paints the devil at times. Someone we, we sort of kind of wink, wink at, kind of chuckle at type of a thing, a harmless prankster type of a person. Uh, it's interesting to trace this through church history. For the first 300 years or so of church history, um, there's actually, we don't actually, interestingly enough, we don't have very many paintings um, from the church. It's mostly like wall and floor mosaics for the first 300 years of church history. And you see um, Jesus or, or a, a scene in the Bible and you see this very scaly, um, reptilian, horned, clawed creature that's, you know, that you never see in the Bible. <laughs> You've ne you know, you don't see anything like that in the Bible. But it's purely bad. It's clearly not right, you know, and pretty bad. Um, also, or as it, it's interesting as, it, as we get further into church history, closer to us, um, interestingly enough, the devil in these paintings is portrayed as a monk. 
So in other words, there's a shift in uh, church theology of the devil being this overtly pure evil being that you can tell, that you can see. He actually comes as a monk, and the only way you can see, you know it's the devil because he's got this kind of deformed foot coming out of the robe, like this claw. It's like a, it's a tell. Oh, you're, you're kind of bad. And then the further you get, the closer you get, closer to us, he's this being of light. There's a, a, full, a further shift in kind of the church's thinking. Interestingly enough, mostly probably what our culture thinks of the devil when it comes to scales and, and wings and horns and those types of things is not from the Bible at all. It's actually from Greek mythology, um, like Milton, you know, paradise lost, paradise regained, or, or uh, Dante. That this, these Greek images that we have freighted in as a church to fill up our imagination with all of these, with all of these uh, images that wrap our mind around us. Satan, by the way, in Hebrew is the word hasatan. And it's, it's actually, if you, translate it, if you translate it out, it is the Satan. It's actually not a, um, it's not a name. It's not a proper name. It's, it's, a t- it's one of these titles that, that the Bible gives to things. The Satan. He first shows up in Job chapter 1 in a also very troubling passage about evil. It's very similar, actually, to what we're reading today. There, God in Job chapter 1, if you ever want to know what my least favorite book of the Bible is, that's it, because it's very, it just, it's, it tweaks with me. It messes with me. And let me just say, there in Job chapter one, God is having some kind of a staff meeting in heaven. He's got his staff team in heaven, the sons of God. And into heaven walks Hasatan. It actually means that the, the name Satan or the Satan means accuser or oppo- the opponent the accuser, the opponent, the adversary. That's what hasatan means. So the, this opponent, the opponent, comes into, into heaven, into God's staff meeting. So pause. Right there, you're reading Job, and you're thinking, why is he even allowed in? You know what I mean? Don't they have security at the door? Don't they take credentials? Don't, isn't there a name badge that you, don't they vet the people coming into the, the, into the inner oval office in heaven? So there's Satan, he comes in and God, God ta- Yahweh talks to him directly. What are you doing? What you been up to? And he says, oh, I've just been wandering to and fro on the earth, you know, causing trouble, you know? And okay, this is what makes me upset. This is what freaks me out. I think it should t- you too, if you're honest. God says, have you considered my servant Job? God's idea. Have you, and have you considered that he's blameless, that he's upright, that he's righteous, that he's done nothing wrong? You should go have a whack at him. Isn't that amazing? From the very, from the out, I mean, it should make your skin crawl a little bit. It should, it should freak you out a little bit. We have a similar kind of a thing going on here. Um, Hebrew, like I said, the, the Hebrew means the adversary or the opponent, and the reason is for that is because when we, you study this creature, what you can know about it or him, whatever you want to call, I like to call it it because I feel like I don't want to give it too much dignity. He's the opposer, he's the adversary, which means he's not for anything, he's actually anti-everything. That's one thing that we know about him. But the idea of this anti-creature 
shows up much earlier than Job, actually. It shows up in, in Genesis chapter 3. You remember the story. There, there they are, in, or Genesis chapter 1, the earth is without form. It's without void. God goes to work to bring uh, form and order so that it can be inhabited, so that it can flourish and it can thrive. And there's this beauty going on. Seven times God, God says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. He creates mankind in his own image, this sacred creature. All the creatures are good. Mankind is sacred in the Bible. We're made in the image of God. And God says, this is very good. This is very, very good. And all of these beautiful things happen. There's this beautiful garden. It's it's lush, everything's flourishing, and in, in chapter three, slithers this creature um, in Hebrew. It's just a horrible sounding name even in Hebrew. It's Nahash. Nahash comes into the garden. And he's, very quickly you find out he's very different. He's like a spiritual type of being because number one, he can talk, he's intelligent. He has a personality. We assume that all the animals could talk. Maybe they could, but we, the Bible tells us this one did. He starts uh, talking, and we know right away, whatever this creature is, he is anti-Yahweh. He's, he's a creature that's already in rebellion. So before human sin, before Adam and Eve rebelled, before this, there is this introduced into this perfect garden, this creature that's already in rebellion against Yahweh and out to, and is anti-everything Yahweh and is out to undo and take God's ordered creation and pull it back into disorder however he can. And he does this by parasiting on to God's image, to, his, to the image bearers. Evil, the Bible is saying, is a parasite of good. And when mankind gives in to this temptation, from this point on in the Bible, when mankind gives in, from this point on, there is an alliance or an accord with humans and evil. There's like a symbiotic relationship. It's like a, you know, guitar and guitar player. They can't make music unless they have each other. This Nahash begins to feed, to fuel and to feed off the pride and distrust that, man, that he can fuel and mankind has for their maker. And it gives him strength and gives him momentum. And he uses good against the good. He's, he's seen as a snake in Genesis. Later, the word will be transformed or become synonymous with another Hebrew word called tanin, which is a sea monster or a dragon or a sea creature of some sort associated with Egypt, um, which is the consummate symbol of oppression, of socioeconomic slavery and oppression and evil empire in the Bible. Here he's portrayed as a snake, later as a sea monster, but whatever, whatever he is, we don't really have a clear idea of his origin story. There's a lot of theories about it, but whatever he is or whatever it is, it's clear that when he shows up, he's already against good. He's already against Yahweh. He's utterly opposed. He's completely dedicated to, utter, to the utter destruction of Yahweh's good planet to you and to me. This creature is the Bible's evil uh, our portrait of evil, and we know it's spiritual, it's personal, it's, in, it's this intelligent entity that's bent, indeed hell-bent, on distorting what God 
um, what God's good purpose is for you and for me and for this planet and for the earth, okay? And the biblical authors, as you keep going through, are adamant that this creature is working behind the scenes, inspiring and fueling division and hatred between humans themselves. More on that a little later on today. We'll get into that. The point is, this story is nothing short than a showdown with evil. That's what the story before us is. I got chills even just saying that. It is. And with Matthew putting this confrontation with evil at this point in the story, at this particular part, point literally in the story, he is saying that this, in a way, defines and prioritizes Jesus' vocation and his mission. He's saying Jesus has come to deal head-on with this force, with this evil that's distorting his father's good world and his loved people. That's what Jesus has come to do. There's a cosmic battle that is happening that kind of mirrors what is going on in our physical realm. You can see that especially in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. There's a spiritual thing. We like to, like for example, we, we, we've seen cartoons of the Exodus story where Pharaoh's magicians are just kind of doing magic tricks. Well, in the Bible it says they're really doing stuff. There's really some kind of power there to draw on. There's a showdown. In Exodus chapter seven, God says, I'm going to show Pharaoh and the gods, that's Elohim in the Bible, I'm gonna show them that I am the true, I am the only one. I am, I'm gonna take rulership over this land once again. So there's this thing going on here. There's the, the Hebrew word for God, generic word for God in the Bible is Elohim. There's a lot of Elohims in the Bible, believe it or not. Only one of those Elohims is Yahweh, okay? And there's some kind of, there's some kind of fallout or rebellion. Ezekiel tells us that there was some kind of rebellion between this, this uh, son of God, what we, we, we will call Nahash or Tanin or the Satan. He didn't, he didn't wanna follow God's plan. He wanted to be God himself. And he uses this, ironically, the same temptation on Adam and Eve. You can, be, you can have it all without God. He uses the same poison that he's drank and gives it to mankind. And that's what's plaguing us today. Okay, so, happy Halloween. We're reverting a little, back a little bit. Thirdly, this first line is troubling because we typically don't think of Jesus being tempted. What's that all about, right? That messes with us a little bit too. Isn't Jesus God? How can he be tempted? Um, the word is plerazo in the Greek. And um, the problem with, with our word tempted is that it's very limited. It, it, it's usually, it's only used in the negative for us, isn't it? Like I'm not, I'm not tempted to do good to Jameson. We typically don't think of it that way. Oh, I'm just tempted to encourage that guy. What do I, you know, it's usually a negative thing that we use it for. In, in the Greek, it's a, it's, a much, much bigger, it's a much bigger word that most scholars believe, including myself, that most scholars believe that the word test is probably more appropriate. And if you think of it that way, this, if, you think, if you look at this passage, and indeed the entire Bible, through this angle of test, if you shift in nuance from tempt to test, it puts an entire different light on this passage and on the Bible's uh, idea of evil, what God is doing in the world, how God uses evil, all of those types of things. This is very crucial for us to understand. 
Because if you think about this as Jesus being tempted, it's actually quite a confusing passage, isn't it? It's very confusing because it's so limited. It's just a negative thing. The whole story becomes, becomes about Jesus being tempted to do something bad and therefore be disqualified or something like that, right? But if the word test sheds a whole different light on the story, indeed, it, it, you, you see this in a completely different way. Well, to test something, let me give you a definition. To test someone or something is to apply stress or pressure to it to reveal the truth about a person or a thing. We, we understand this, right? To test something is to apply pressure or, or, or some kind of stress to something to reveal something about it. Uh, Isaiah, Caldera, he just recently was tested. In fact, uh, he was tested to work on backflows. The state would not let him repair certain kinds of backflows unless he, and I don't even know what a backflow looks like, so if you're like, he doesn't even know what backfly is, you're right, I don't, but he, I know Isaiah was tested, in other words, the state was saying, we will not let anybody work on a backflow, first we need to test a person to reveal the truth about that person, if they know what they're doing, right? Uh, if anybody's a school teacher like me, you get this, you, you test your students, not to just make their life miserable, you test them because you wanna see the truth about what they learned about the block, uh, the unit of knowledge that you just taught them. What did you retain from this? I wanna learn the truth. So you test them. Now, are tests fun? No, they are not fun. They're stressful. That's the point. You can't use your notes. It's not open book, right? We're trying to see how much of this got into your being, into your mind. Do you understand it? That type of a thing. And in a test, you use different angles. You might use multiple choice. You might use fill in the blank. You might have some essay questions. You try to get the brain in as different ways as you possibly can to see where can I extract this knowledge of what they've, what they've learned. Jesus is being, and, and what's, I love the school teacher example because what are we trying to do as teachers? We're trying to form certain kinds of people, especially in a Christian educational model like I'm so blessed to be in. We're not just trying to give people knowledge, we're trying to form character, a kind of people that will be good for society, that will actually help the world, a kind of person, right? Well, the Bible is all about form here. So now, Jesus is being tested in our passage, and he's being formed this is, so, so that means not only is this inevitable in your walk with God, but it is necessary. It's kind of a, you know, sweet and sour meal here. Not only is it um, inevitable that you will encounter, you have encountered, everything you're encountering is, a, I thought about uh, titling this, it's a test, it's only a test, you know. But it's a test with a lot writing on it. It reveals the truth to you and to others about who you are. My favorite president, James Garfield, he said that when he, he was um, assassinated, not even a year into the job, but it took him a long time to die, shot him in the back. He suffered and suffered and suffered, but he was a good, good, good man, good man. The more, he, more pain he went through, the kinder he got. It's just... I love his story. He loved, um, he loved the sea. He loved to be on a ship. This is where his heart was. And he used to say, trials in a man's life 
are like storms at sea. They shake up a man's sea bottom, meaning storms and hurricanes come through, they, they shift the sand, and whatever's been stuck under there comes, whatever's really there comes bloop, bloop, bubbling to the top. It's a test to see what's really there, okay? This is what's going on with Jesus. Why is this necessary for Jesus? I'm sure you asked that question in your mind. Thank you. Because in this event, Jesus is like Jameson so wonderfully said last week, through this event, like every event, Matthew is saying that Jesus is reliving and rewriting several episodes in Israel's redemptive history. Um, I think of it, uh, you know, if if anybody's been in a recording studio uh, or recorded music, you lay down a track, and if you sing flat or you sing sharp or whatever you do, you don't have to redo the whole thing typically. One layer is laid down, and you re-sing, relive over the top of it, and you try to hit that one note correct. You try to rewrite the mistakes. That's what's going on here. That's what Matthew is saying by the word pleiro, fulfillment. Jesus is going back through, and the theological nerdy word, if you want it, the geeky word, is recapitulation. He's recapitulating the failed past of humanity. He's reliving it, and he's writing over the top of it, except he's doing it right. This is Jesus's alternate, this is God's alternate ending to the story. Yeah, Richard. Yeah, right. I don't remember that is too. I think that's in John, I think. I came to undo the works of the devil. Yeah, it's an outright, again, it prioritizes his vocation. This is what I'm here to do. I'm going to undo evil, which means he's got to deal with mankind because evil and man are in, they're in bed. There's a relationship that they have together. Isn't that creepy? Think about that for a second. Sidebar. Everything that you do wrong. It's not, so it's not like there are some people that sin and make mistakes over here, and then if you get really bad into sin, then you're dealing with the devil and like occult practices. No, 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 no. According to this, every time, every sin has got some kind of interaction with some, with some kind of evil personality that's trying to distort and destroy you. You know, cre- little you know, creatures. Little, you know, ugh. I don't know what they are, but they're, but they're, that's what's, that's what's going on. Okay, so like that's part of what's going on in your marriage. That's part of what's going on in that, the dynamics in your family. You know? That's part of what's going on in those habits that you can't seem to shake. There's, there's an element of that. Not being superstitious, I'm not being under, uh, you know, under superstitious either, subspicious, however you want to say it. I, I'm saying, right, there's some kind of agreement going on there, okay? So for Jesus to deal, to come to make an end of evil, he's got to relive the human story. That's what's happening here, all right? In a few different ways. I mean, in, you know, you, I'm sure you've already thought of it. Where, where, so Jesus, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the human. He's saying, look at. This is the human. Jesus is the human. He's the prototype. Where was another time, another prototype showed up of humankind where he faced a test or she faced a test? 
What's that? Noah? Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. After the ark was on Ararat and it was a good, successful thing, Noah was seduced to do something evil as well. Mm -hmm. Even before that, we already talked about it, Adam and Eve, right? Adam, he's he's the... prototype of human uh, of humankind here it is and the hush comes in job just as we already talked about job just as god wanted to show job off so if you if you now now does job make a little bit more sense god is saying test him he's righteous he's blameless have adam and you'll see what's revealed and at the end of the book job passes with flying colors god saying hey He's using evil to reveal the truth about what's going on in his world. And the same thing here. Just as God was showing the Job, Job is a foreshadow of Jesus. Now God is saying, have at it, man. Go, I'm gonna leave. In fact, it has to happen. See what happens when you mess with my son. But the, most, the biggest emphasis, no doubt, that Matthew is pointing to here is, is Israel in the wilderness, No question about it. Matthew is clearly pointing to this. After the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul flatly tells us that that was their baptism, so to speak. After they passed through the Red Sea, they went immediately into the wilderness for 40 years, just as here, Jesus, after, right after his baptism, he's in the wilderness for 40 days, passing through the waters of the baptism. Now, why in the world would, would why? Did you know that uh, there was a short way to get to the, to get to the promised land for, for Israel. They could have gotten there right away, but God said, no, you're gonna park here in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Well, he tells us. This is Deuteronomy chapter eight. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. He says, the whole commandment that I have commanded to you today, you shall be careful to do. Why? In other words, I need you to obey me. And like carefully, I want you to do what I say. Why? So that you may live and multiply. Because it's good for you. I'm showing you the way. This is the way of Yahweh. The law and the prophets is the way of Yahweh. It's the plan for mankind to flourish and thrive. And go in a process in that land that swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Here it is. Why? So that he might humble you Here's our word, testing you to know what was in your heart. Shake you up so the real stuff would bubble up so you could see it, the junk that only pressure gives out. You know when you're hangry? You know what I mean? The real you comes out, you know? Testing you to know what's in your heart whether you would keep my commandments or not. And he humbled you and let your hunger Um, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you that man, uh, make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing didn't wear out. Your foot did not, your feet didn't swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, he's calling Israel his son, just like Jesus is now the son in the wilderness. As a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God is disciplining you. Don't think spanking you. He's forming you. He's like Nicole and I are charged to form, to help noble form 
into a certain kind of person. It's a, and it, you parents know, it's a high and holy calling. We're forming, we're, and we use discipline to do it. That's what's going on here. So this, this is the passage that Jesus quotes in the first temptation. In other words, Jesus in his mind, he was, able, he was so familiar with the story He was so familiar with the narrative, he was so familiar with the story that he was able to place himself in Israel's story. He was able to say, I know what's going on here, I'm reliving and therefore rewriting what's going on here. I'm being tested. He said it himself, I'm being tested. He's referring to this. Israel in the wilderness, did they pass or fail? Failed. Right? So Jesus is going to rewrite the story on their behalf and in a sense, He's gonna rewrite the story on all of our behalf, all the, all the tests that we fail. We're, you're all, we're all been tested, and I think we've all, if we were to flash those things up on the screen, those times, more often than not, we would probably go, oh. Yeah, <laughs> a bigger scream, yeah. Well said, well said. Okay, so um, with that, but that little, I think that kind of cleans everything up. I think we can jump right in here at this point. So with that, let's look at all three of these tests here and see what we can learn. Oh, also, another sidebar. Here's what's interesting about the story. This, to me, is just fascinating. Where did this story even come from? Every one of Jesus' stories has eyewitnesses. That's what, that's what disciples do. Uh, how discipleship works is that you would, you would have your rabbi and you would walk around and just watch him. And you would listen to what he was doing and you would see what he was doing and you would commit all of it to memory. This is the disciples' job. This is Matthew chapter 13, a scribe. They would commit it all to memory and then they would orally, accurately, orally pass it down. It had to be accurate. It had to be right. They would commit it to memory. The only thing with this is, where did this come from? Nobody else is here. Only Jesus is here. This tells me that it had to have come from Jesus himself. In other words, this experience was so formative and important for Jesus that he gathered his guys around him at some point, maybe around a campfire, because it's a creepy story, and he says to them, hey, there is this one time where my identity was fully assaulted by evil, and I want to tell you guys about it, and I want you to commit it to memory, because every gospel has a version of this story in it. I want you to commit, I want you to commit this story to memory. So this, is, this, is, this was a very... This is, this, that, to me, the reason I'm telling you that is because, to me, that makes this feel a little more intimate to me. That this was, so, this was such a formative experience. You know, we all have those. Those moments in our lives where there was our life before it and then there was our life after it. And that's, you know, when, we, when someone asks, hey, tell a, a, a big story. There's a few that come to your mind. This is one of those for Jesus. This one time when I, right when the Lord, gave, when the Father showed me who I was or declared in front of everybody who I was, I've, I, I had this encounter. I had this encounter with the Satan, with Nahash, with the accuser, with the opponent. Imagine the disciples around that fire leaning in. Tell us more, you know. And it's so profound. Okay, so here we go. When Jesus, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, going without food, symbolized, of course, that was the main issue of complaint that the Israelites had in in Exodus and Numbers. They were hungry and they complained about it. So it's, it's right in line with that. And the tempter or the tester 
came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight, what I just read to you. Okay, so he's in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's not eating, he's hungry, very hungry. And notice this is a direct attack on the identity of Jesus that was revealed in our last study in chapter three. When Jesus was baptized, do you remember that voice that came from heaven? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Did you know, by the way, Jameson and I were studying this together and there was this thing that I remembered I could not figure it out that came to me finally. That line this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Did you know that that's, that's not random? Did you know that that's actually two Old Testament quotes spliced together into one sentence? Did you know that? The first line, this is my beloved son, comes from Psalm chapter two. It's a messianic psalm that is anticipating the son of David who will rule and reign from God's throne in Jerusalem and the nations will rage against him but he will be victorious. That's who they thought the Messiah would be, the son of David, okay? But the next half of that sentence, in whom I am well pleased, comes from the book of Isaiah chapter two, talking about what up to this moment in history, everyone thought is two different prophetic figures. The son, Psalm chapter two, and Isaiah 42 says, behold my servant in whom I am well pleased. And up into this very moment with Jesus being baptized, the Jewish world thought that these were two different prophetic figures figures. There will be the son, the Messiah, and there will be this servant figure. Some thought it was the nation of Israel. Some thought it was Isaiah. Some thought it was some future person. Some thought it was future Israel. They thought it was these two different things. Well, finally, God said, actually, no. These two quotes refer to one person. This one person is my beloved son, and he's the servant in whom I am well pleased. As this goes into Isaiah 53, who has believed our message, that beautiful, beautiful poem that we have in Isaiah 53. Incredible moment, incredible moment. A Jewish person would have been like, what? I mean, it would have been a mind-blowing moment. He's in one, he's the servant and the son, oh my gosh. And Jesus, like Jameson so wonderfully said, we all need our identity spoken to, conquer anything. Someone, someone important to you, like a dad, says, I love you, you got this. Whew, you can do anything. I remember young, uh, earlier in my, when I was a pastor, I was taking, I was starting a church, Nicole and I were starting a church in Austria with 27 other people and we were gonna plant a pastor there. We were gonna start this bad boy out. It's Christmas time. We were gonna go, oh, the Randalls were with us and their kids, it was so fun. And we went there and we did these Christmas carols. Have you ever been to Salzburg, Austria? It's like walking into one of those shaking snow globes. It's like beautiful. And it was a raving success. In fact, I think the first Sunday that we were there, Randall's, we had 40 people there. Do you know how many people met today in Salzburg, Austria? 165 people met in Salzburg, Austria today at the church that we got to launch that Sunday. Very cool, super cool. Point was what? Oh, so I was there, I was at the airport, and I'm nervous, because I've got all these people. 
and I'm taking kids without their parents into Austria. And you know, Dave Caldera was there and we have to keep track of passports and all this and make sure people don't die and all of these things. And I was really nervous. And this person that I really respect called and said, I just wanted to call and let you know you're ready for this. You were made for this. You can do this. And I'll tell you what, it was like, it was just like, uh, it was what I needed. It grounded me, spoke to my identity. You know, there's nothing like that. Jesus, I think, needed that from the Father. He's about to embark on this really intense thing, saving, you know, mankind. He's about to do this thing. He needs to hear from the Father. And so what does the enemy go for right away? If you are the son of God. Let's test this, Jesus. If you are the son of God. So notice what the tempter is doing here. Notice that he, first of all, the tester is linking Jesus's identity with his what? With his circumstances, right? Hey, Jesus, this doesn't match up, does it? Because, I mean, if you are the son of God, you should probably not be hungry, right? Because you're his son. If, if he is well-pleased with you, if you are the beloved, then how come you're not, you don't have any food? How come you're hungry? How come he led you out here? If, if you are the son of God, then why is your life the way it is? If you are loved in the son of God, how come your roof keeps leaking? Straight out of my own heart right there. How come your car keeps breaking down? How come... How come life is so hard? If you are loved in the Son of God, how come, man, you do not have the Midas touch here? See what's happening here? It's so deep and so profound and it's so close to home. Learning about Jesus, we learn more about ourselves. Absolutely. So what's the implication? The opponent attacks identity through circumstances. God doesn't love you because if he did, if you were the favored one, if he did delight in you, this would not be happening right now. This would not, you would not be going through this. So therefore, you must not be his son. Sound familiar? Oh, right to the heart. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, which is set in the testing of the children in the wilderness. Jesus frames his situation in the word of God and therefore knows he's, been, he's given an opportunity to rewrite the wrongs of Israel. And his answer is so, so, so profound. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice he does not say, man does not live by bread. <clears throat> I've heard actually some people say this, and we, of course we know this is ridiculous. You have to eat. He's not saying food does not matter. And he's not saying that your needs don't matter. He's not saying that the things that you need are actually you're being selfish and you don't need those things. If you're more spiritual, you just, you just read the Bible all day long. That's not what he's saying. He's saying man shall not live by bread only, alone. In other words, he's saying... It's so profound about what, what it means to be a human. Being a human is more than just surviving. It's more than just survival. It's more than just bodily appetites. Wouldn't you agree? Humans need more than just food and shelter and good education and socioeconomic things. We need more than, yes, we need more than that though. What, else, what are some other things that we need as humans? Other people, yes? 
relationships where we belong, right? Loving, preferably loving ones, yes. Where we know we belong somewhere. Um, I always think of Viktor Frankl. He was a psychoanalyst in Auschwitz, a Jewish psychoanalyst in Auschwitz who survived. He wrote this incredible little book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's basically, you should pick it up. It's a, it's, it's a quick read, but it's basically his observations of people who survived and didn't survive psychologically in a concentration camp, in the worst concentration camp. And he said unequivocally, not a Christian, he said unequivocally, the people who survived are those that had some kind of hope or meaning or purpose. When they lost meaning and purpose, it was inevitable that they would die. Even if they were, if they were provided the, ne- the basic necessities of life, like food and shelter. Jesus here is making a profound statement. He's saying, look, food is not, that's just for survival. Mankind was meant to thrive. We were meant to flourish. We were meant to, um, we were meant to multiply, to teem with possibility and goodness and health and wholeness. That's what we were meant for. And Jesus is saying for that, that we get that from, the, from God himself. And we intuitively know this, don't we? That's why we drink in all that the world and the culture has to offer and we still find ourselves wanting and needing more. In short, mankind was meant to feed and thrive off of God's loving words to them. We saw that in the last chapter. chapter, You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is saying, that's my food. That burning love of God in the center of my heart, flaming up my identity is so sure. That's what I need. That if I don't have food and the other things, I still have that and I'll still survive. You see how profound this is about what it even means to be a human. You need the love of God. You need the love of God, sometimes expressed through other people, absolutely. But from his word, we need to know that we belong my value and my identity, thank God, are not tied to my circumstances. My value and my identity is not tied to my leaking roof or my car that breaks or whatever it is. I have a leaking roof, yes, yes, I do. In fact, this morning, I woke up, ready for church, went out to the sink and looked up and went, oh no, I thought I fixed that. I bought a whole can of Coke and just wherever I could on the roof, just because I'm not a fixing type of person. I anointed, it. I anointed it with oil first, prayed over it. So we belong, we, our identity is not tied to those circumstances. God actually can allow bad things to happen to you and still love you. That is possible. In fact, we have a whole Bible full of instances like that. Okay, temptation number two. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, well, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, well, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So tactic is the same. I'm gonna attack your identity. There it is again. If you are the son of God, and he takes him up to the, t- I personally think that this is um, what the Old Testament prophets called a vision. I don't think 
Jesus actually walked out of the desert into Jerusalem through the streets, climbed the temple, or the temple of the tallest pinnacle. I think it was a, um, like an in-between reality where the enemy took him this vision and he said to him, hey, here's what the Bible says. So now the enemy's gonna, going to quote scripture at him, but twist it ever so slightly to change ever so slightly the character of God. What is the implication? You should test and see if you are the son of God by throwing yourself down because that would prove it. In other words, God needs to be, God's the one that needs to be tested here. Because of your circumstances, because you're out here and you're hungry, because your life's not going well, because, I mean, look at your birth, Jesus. Look at every, your whole life has been really hard. How in the world can a guy like you say that you're the son of God? You know what? We need to test this out. We need to test this out. And he reads Psalm 91, which is just a beautiful psalm. I went to this in, while I was studying to read it, and oh, man, I loved it. Just, let me just read it to you just for its beauty. It's all about trust. It's all about trust. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, you're my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I love it. I trust you, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with, pin, with his pinions, and under his wings will, will you find refuge. His faithfulness is a shelter and a, a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror at night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that strikes in darkness, nor the destruction that, was, that, was, that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall on your side, 10,000 on your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, in other words, you've trusted him, who is your refuge. No evil shall, shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For, and here's, what, here's where the enemy quotes his little passage. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in your ways. On their hands they will, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, God says, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him salvation. It's a beautiful psalm. I mean, it's just, gosh, wonderful. I've started reading it like every night before I go to bed. It's just, just a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And it's all about trust. But notice the enemy here, he takes a piece of it and he, he twists it to imply that God is not trustworthy and therefore he needs to be tested. This is like the, I call this the health and wealth test. If you are the son of God, then you should be able to just pull God out of your pocket when you need him. And he should just come to your beck and call. This is like, a, the, like you should be a spoiled little child if he, is your, if he is your father. He should just say an eternal yes to all of your demands and all the things that you need. This is using and twisting the Bible, again, ever so slightly, unperceptively even, which so many Christians have done, to change the character of God. If he loves you, then he should be there for you. He should bless you and take care of all of your needs. And this is the temptation to turn the tables on God and test him. And Jesus is saying, my, my relationship with the Father is not like that. 
I don't have that kind of relationship with God. I trust him. And I obey him simply because I trust him and because I love him, not to get something from him. Jesus, and his answer is Jesus quotes from, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter six. He'll always be in Deuteronomy. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's, it's worth reading the first 12 verses of that. Deuteronomy chapter six, to get it in its context. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, this is Moses speaking, that you may do them in the land which you are going, which you are going over to, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and commandments which I command to you all the days of your life and that, the, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them so that it'll go, it'll go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That means trust him with all your heart. Obedience in the Bible and the law in the Bible is always linked to a heart of trust trusting him. And without that, all sorts of spiritual disease comes out of that when we divorce or abstract God's character, his loving goodness from his commandments. You need to be careful with that. So you shall teach them diligently to your children. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to you with great and good cities that you, that you did not build, in other words, I'm gonna bless you, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and you're full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Okay. He's saying the test of God is not that he gives you a bunch of stuff. In fact, that, what, what if, let me ask you this, let me put it provocatively. What if the worst thing that God could do to you is to give you what you think you want or you need. We end, up, it's, we end up forgetting about the Lord when we're sometimes when we're just abundantly blessed. Why? It doesn't guarantee that he has our heart. It doesn't mean that we trust him. Only in tests does that come. And it goes on, he says, you shall, in verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, don't latch God's goodness to you, to your circumstances, and don't test him by thinking, well, if he, if he blesses me, that means he loves me. Oh, you could be so deceived there. What? You can be so deceived with that and so deceived there. If you obey God's precepts, you will be more inclined for a blessed life. That is absolutely, that is absolutely true, but, but the reason we do that is because we trust him. For, him, for his sake alone, because of a relationship alone, right? If my son, if, I, if he ever came to me someday and said, Dad, from this point forward, I will do everything you ever tell me. I won't skip a beat. I'll follow all your rules. But you jerk, you will never have my heart. Would I be like, parenting? Ooh, he's gonna follow my, no, of course not. I want that boy's heart. You know, God is the same way. Therefore, to test God betrays, actually betrays a belief that God is in our service. 
To test God betrays a belief that God is in our service, that he should be doing what we want him to do, and that's not how Jesus' relationship with God works. Why obey, Jesus is saying, because I love him, and that's it. Because I love him, and that's it. Can you trust him in good and in bad? That is the test. Can you trust God in the good times and in the bad times? Jesus looks at God through that lens. Finally, temptation number three. Again, the the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Excuse me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came, just like Psalm 91 said, and ministered to him. Okay. The tester is no longer attacking Jesus' identity anymore. It's not working, right? So what is this? What is this? He, this is just a bold, straight-up offer of power. In fact, let me just put it to you this way. He's, a, he's kind of giving in to Jesus. He's appealing to Jesus' destiny. I mean, is Jesus, has Matthew presented Jesus as the king? Yes. Is it Jesus' destiny that he will bring the rule and kingdom of God to all places of the earth and that the worship of Yahweh will be there? Yes. Yes. So Satan, he knows what's happening here. He's picking up on this. He's astute to what is going on. And finally, he just says, fine, you are the Messiah, but let's talk about how you're going to get there. Let's talk about how. I've got a shortcut I've got a plan. I've got a way that you can have all of this without the agony and the suffering and all the other things that you're going through. Let's skip to the end, Jesus. I'll give you all of these these kingdoms if you just worship me. It is the destiny of Jesus to rule the earth. So the tester is saying, fine. Okay, What's interesting here, too, is that Satan says, I will give you all these. In other words, he claims that he has major influence over how our world is ran. This is a claim throughout the entire Bible, especially in the New Testament when it comes to evil. In fact, in the New Testament, like here, we do have uh, the, the devil or evil messing with an individual person. That does, we will run into that, especially through the Gospels. But Overwhelmingly, by and large, the New Testament frames evil more than that as dealing with the systems by which humans organize themselves through. Different ideologies, different systems of government, the way culture and society is ruled. Uh, Paul says that these are principalities and powers that are working and influencing in and through how societies and governments and organizational structures are being ran. There's this this kind of cosmic element going on here. The power structures themselves, Satan is saying, are utterly compromised and infiltrated with evil. That's the way the Bible looks at any system of government, any philosophical idea, anyone. They are infiltrated with, with, pervaded with evil and compromised and, um, And if you have a hard time believing this, I just appeal to the news. Let me just show you. I mean, right now, I can just do this in real time. Let me just do this, go like this, flip over. Here's the news. What's that? 
Yeah, I am totally serious. Stricken Gaza hospitals reports death of newborns amid power, outrage, power outages in Israel. Okay? Five U.S. service members killed in aircraft training accident in eastern Mediterranean Sea. I'm just reading down the list. An aggressive McCarthy weighs leaving the house with his GOP foes on his mind. Critically ill, eight-month-old removed from life support after parents bat, uh, battle in court in UK. I'm just reading the list on my newsfeed right now. If you have a hard time believing in evil, I would just say the, Westerns, the Western world's explanation of what's wrong with the world is incredibly naive and incredibly reductionistic to say that all we need is more tax dollars or more infrastructure or more better socioeconomic and more equality. All those things are good. They're, they're very good. But to leave it there is incredibly short-sighted and incredibly naive. The Bible would say there's something else happening. Yes, all of those things. But there's something else going on behind it. Evil. Whether you're on the right or the left, it's there. It's intricately working. If you have a hard time even going that far, study the 20th century. The 20th century, like not far, the 20th century, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in recorded history. Tens and tens and tens of millions of lives died, perished in the 20th century under the name of some utopian dream that, that some country had. Tens and tens of millions of lives thrown into the furnace of an idea and a machine of what humanity and society ought to look like. Evil. The Bible. I'm not, I'll tell you this. I'm not diatribing off my own opinion. I'm telling you what the Bible says throughout. There is something behind it all in and through working in that. And that's what Jesus came to take on head on right here in chapter four. And look at this, look at his response. Did you notice before, every response up to this point, he's pretty measured, Jesus is. You know, the, the Satan says, well, the Bible says this. And Jesus kind of says, yeah, but it also says this. It's like the duel, you know. Here, Jesus gets emotional. Did you notice that? Look at that. Get out of here, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Something, when you read it, you kind of go, what was that? What was that all about, Jesus? Like all good temptation, this would not be the only time that Jesus would face this test and not the only time that Jesus would say these words. Turn, if you turn to Matthew chapter 16, if you hold, and this is so powerful, it's worth your time, do it. Matthew 16. Look at this. This is verse um, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that, I, that, the, that the Son of Man is? Okay? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he says to them, but wait, 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 who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, remember this? Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. That's who you are. 
And Jesus answered him and said, man, you are blessed, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, skip down to verse 21. Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. And Peter took him aside and said, no, 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 no. He rebuked Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord. This is never gonna happen to you. But then he turned to him and here's our phrase, same phrase in the Greek, exact same phrase. Get out of here, Satan. Get thee behind me. Same emotion, same phrase. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your, thing, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, you have no clue what's going on here. You have no idea what's going on here. The kingdoms of this world, they show their glory by what? Show of force. Might makes right. An eye for an eye, it's power. Who's the strongest that will survive? It's like a good old Western movie, you know? Meet you at the flagpole. You know, in the Western, it's not the good guys that win, it's the fastest guys that win. It's the strongest guys that win. That's what it's all about. Who's the strongest? Who's who's got the biggest economy? Who's got the bigger vision? Who's got this and that? And we'll throw lives into the furnace to sacrifice to this thing. Jesus is saying, get out of here. I'm not, that's, you know, uh, Peter is saying, Jesus, messiahs don't, don't win like that. Messiahs kick butt. Messiahs, you know, they come to get her done, conquer. We're gonna go to Jerusalem, we're gonna storm that castle, and we're going to take that, we're gonna take that throne by force. That's what we're gonna do. And Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. You have no idea what I'm doing here. I'm gonna win by losing. I'm gonna win. I'm gonna stop evil. I'm gonna shut evil down by letting by letting it devour me. I'm gonna bow my head and I'm gonna let that Nahash, I'm gonna let that Tanin, I'm gonna let that sea monster eat me alive and chew me up and consume me on the cross. That's how I'm gonna beat this thing. This is the victory of Jesus over evil. He calls a shot even from here. And he also empowers us to do it in this way too. If you want a model for spiritual warfare, by God's power, humble yourself. By God's power, confess your sins and say you are wrong and I'm sorry. By God's power, back down. Love those who hurt you. I say by God's power because I know it's so hard. We need the spirit of God. This story is about Jesus being the ultimate human, the kind of human that we could never be, that we failed these tests. It's about Jesus doing it for us so that we can finally become the kind of humans that we were always meant to be. He's doing this for us so that, we can, so that we can be Yahweh people and we can go out in this world and face evil and face our tests and by God's spirit say, okay, get, the, get behind me, Satan, through humility, through nonviolence, through grace, 
Okay, a few things for you. This is Jesus' victory over evil. Do you know, can you recognize the voices that would try to dehumanize you? This is some practical stuff for you to take home. Can you learn to recognize the kind of voices in your head that would dehumanize you? And can you know that that is evil itself? I can't. I'm stupid. I'm less than. I'll never be able to. After all that I did, he won't love me. If he did, why am I in this place? I've messed up too far. I've done too many things. That is Nahash. He doesn't love you. Not after what you did. You'll never get better. This is just the way it's going to be. Can you hear it? Know them and tell them, excuse my French, get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. Do you know how to counter the voices in your head with the word of God? Do you know how to say, no, I am his dearly beloved in Christ? There's this, no one says this better than John Newton. He, he says, okay, let me see if I can remember it bowed down beneath a weight of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by wars without and shame within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield in hiding place that sheltered by your side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for throwing yourself into the mouth of evil to defeat it for us. Thank you, Lord, that you have empowered us to fight those voices that would dehumanize us and that would show us hatred Too often do we listen to those voices, Lord. Would you help us to follow your way? Would you give us that strength today? And as we take communion, Lord, may we remember that you defeated evil in the way that you did. Just as it took good against good, you took evil and you turned it against itself on the cross to defeat it forever and ever. And we stand in victory today as we take this communion. We come to you for rest. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.